please read with me the rest of General chapter 4, starting in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, and for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this king, who ultimately is just a guy like us who has trust issues and is broken, and we just thank you that you are uh, always there and ready and willing to hear us uh, when we are ready to come to you. We thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for Grant speaking your word also, and we just praise you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, prayer. Thank you very much, Jenny. Have a seat. Grab a Bible. I left my Bible on the front pew here, so I'm going to grab my Bible. Don't you love Old Testament stories like this? They're so good to just go, wow, that's weird. And then you dig in a little bit and go, oh my gosh, there is some deep and wonderful truth here. This is the, uh, it's good to see you guys. I'm, I'm glad to be with you this morning. It, this is the, the story of the kind of the wrap up of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. We got talking last week about that that's what genre we should feel like this is. This is a testimony. And being a testimony, we don't have to nitpick every, well, what about this? Well, what about this? This is Nebuchadnezzar's story from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. Now, having said that, this totally is, I believe, historical and and happened uh, just like it says, but that doesn't mean it's not, that doesn't mean it's normative. Like, I think we would say that that is true of almost all of our testimony. 
that the way God got your attention might not be the exact way he gets somebody else's attention. And you might hear somebody tell their story and go, I think that dude is just strange. And you might hear somebody else tell their story and you go, you know what? That really resonates with me. I think I'm grasping the same, uh, the same truth he is. So Nebuchadnezzar's experience isn't normative, but it does speak to the unchanging, immutable, if you will, character of God. And I think that's important because if we stand up here and just go, well, look, I really don't think, and this in my many years of being alive, many, many years of being alive, I have never seen anybody else banished to the wilderness to grow their hair and nails. You know, like if we're saying, what, is this the way God works? You would say, no, but that is the way God worked. So what do we do with that kind of a, I don't know if it's a paradox or, or that kind of messiness that just comes with, with, um, with narratives in general, with life? Mistake, we could make a couple of really, I think, terrible mistakes when we're thinking about this. God is unchanging, but everyone's experience will be different. You, yeah? Okay, you with me so far? Okay, but that's interesting. Like, so then what can I expect? Like, wouldn't it be easier if it was like, if you do this, that, and this, then you will receive this, that, and this. And if you do this, that, and this, then God will be mad and you will experience this, that, and this. And that's just not the way it works. But that doesn't mean we can't pull out truths that are normative, that work for everybody. You know, one mistake we could make is I think we, we could say something like, well, since... Uh, since God is always the same, I should get the same results as that guy over there. And I think maybe we've all kind of fallen victim to that mistake. You hear somebody tell a story and they're like, look, my life was miserable, nobody liked me, and I smelled bad. And then I found Jesus and I started smelling like petunias and everybody liked me and I got a great job and now I live in a mansion. And you go, I don't live in a mansion. <laughs> like, I, don't, I still have problems in my life. What's going on? How come God was nicer to that guy than he was to me? I think we've all kind of had that experience one way or another. The other kind of mistake you might make is to say something like, since life isn't predictable, God is not good or God is not great. If God doesn't solve my problems in the exact same way he solved that person's problems, it must be that he's either can't do it or won't do it for some reason. That's a very mechanical perspective on God. That's very robotic. That, that, that's treating God nothing like a person. And let me just start by saying, if you have ever been in authority at all, like I, I enjoy, I, I, did, I umpired a couple of baseball games yesterday. I just like being on baseball fields, um, talking to baseball coaches. And I was talking to this one coach. He's got this, you know, eight-year-old throwing 3,000 miles an hour, some crazy thing, this great athlete. And, and, um, and we were talking about leading different kids. And even at eight years old, some kids need to be told, hey, buddy, you okay? Everything all right? Just wanted to tell you you're special. Now go out and try hard. And other kids need to be told, I will cut you, man. Like I will, you will sit the bench and you turn in your uniform. And then it's not until you really get in their mess kit a little bit that they respond. And then they go, okay, coach. And they go out and do great and go, coach, love me, right? Like you treat everybody a little different, every situation. If you've raised kids, you know that every kid's a little different. Every situation with every kid's a little different. That's just the way it is. So it's not that God is um, not consistent. 
It's that life is so inconsistent and every situation is so different. We have to know, can I trust the character of God in every situation or can't I? A perfect father, which is how God introduces himself to us, knows that every situation needs a little something different. So God's character is absolutely trustworthy. We can learn a lot about God's character from Nebuchadnezzar's story. You know, let me start with the end. The big idea for this morning is very simple. Humility leads to exaltation, which is probably the exact opposite of what we would think leads to exaltation. And I use that kind of dorky word, exaltation, because I'm tempted to use the word success, that humility leads to success. But that very quickly imports a bunch of earthly ideas about success and that success means, you know, handsome and wealthy and healthy and whatever. And that's, that's not at all the biblical idea. There's nothing in Scripture that would tell us humility or we can, you know, work the levers so that God owes us a certain kind of lifestyle. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater and say God has not promised anything. God has over and over in Scripture. Nebuchadnezzar is a great example of it, but over and over in Scripture, we see the path to the good life is die to self. That humility before God. You'll notice, and I'll mention this maybe a couple of times as we go, but do you see, like, track Nebuchadnezzar's eyes in the story? On his palace, looking down. Look at all of this I have done. And then the moment he gets better, the moment that his life changes for the better, when his reason comes back to him, is when he turns his eyes to the God of heaven. Now, I think Nebuchadnezzar ends up a rich and powerful guy because Nebuchadnezzar started a rich and powerful guy. But he was rich and powerful and miserable and ends up exalted to the point where he says, I want to tell the whole earth what God has done for me. Humility in Nebuchadnezzar's life, humility in your life and mine is the path Humility before God, not just humility, but humility that recognizes the God of heaven, as Nebuchadnezzar says, is the path to an exalted life. I'll tell you why I'm using the word exalted. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. What could Peter have meant? when he says the word exalt, when Peter says that he may exalt you. Who is Peter? Peter's one of Jesus' core disciples. So is that Peter, James, John? Then Peter kind of stands out as that, you're my rock. But after the resurrection, how did Peter's life go? Like Peter is telling people about how to live an exalted life as he is on the path to martyrdom under Nero. So this is something that transcends how much stuff you got and how many people think you're cool. This is Peter telling his friends, the people he loves, the leaders in the churches that he has planted, that the secret to living a life that I think we would most easily identify as love and joy and peace in my life, is 
to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, that he will exalt us at the right time. Humility leading to being exalted probably seems as counterintuitive to Peter's readers as it did to the people Nebuchadnezzar's telling the story to, as it does to you and me. Everything about us says that if you want love and joy and peace, if you want the good life, if you want an exalted life, you're going to have to go get it yourself. That's going to be you. It's going to be your pride that is your, your self, your sense of self, and your pride is going to be your biggest asset in getting that life. And the testimony of the scriptures over and over and over is that your pride is the thing that is in the way of you living a life of love and joy and peace. There is an exaltation, an upliftedness that is universal for believers, even if the details of every person's story will be different. You know, that's the kind of sentence I just, you know, I read that sentence. I wrote that on like Wednesday or Thursday. That's the kind of sentence you write and then you go, gosh, do I mean that? Because there's lots of sad Christians. And there's lots of Christians in bad situations. And there's lots of Christians that are living lives that I would, I hope I would have the courage to live, but maybe not. And through my very comfortable, you know, kind of eyes with, wonderful wife and kids and a great job and the whole thing. It's easy for me to go, is that too bold to say that love and joy and peace are available to every human? And the path is self-denial, humility, and turning our eyes to the God of heaven. And then as I read scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture, I go, yeah, that's absolutely what I mean. That right where you are, and we'll talk about this, right where you are, the, the people you're most worried about, right where they are. The people that we're praying for on the mission field, right where they are. Love and joy and peace, a relationship, all the benefits of a relationship with God are available to each of us right where we are. And maybe some of those difficult situations seem closer than the situation Nebuchadnezzar was in. Full of earthly success, full of earthly pride. Peter is lighting a path to exaltedness on his way to martyrdom. Certainly, that's available to us now. And even for Nebuchadnezzar, in a, in a worldly way, he was, he was pretty exalted even without his experience of God. If we're looking at earthly success, but it was humbling himself before God that has given him a whole different kind of glory. This is a testimony. We're just going to listen to Nebuchadnezzar tell it, and, and we're just going to say, this is this guy's testimony. I had everything, the literal king of the world. But it wasn't until I humbled myself before the God of heaven that I can tell you what real glory, what real honor, what real joy is like. From the halls of power in our world to the lowliest among us, if you want to know what is missing in your heart, if you want to know the path to exaltedness, it is humility before God. So this is a unique story, but it does fit into a whole bunch of other unique stories in Scripture that together kind of form a familiar and recognizable path. And you know, like humility is always the end, and some people in Scripture start 
humble and experience, you know, the life that God has for them, experience that love and joy and peace without a season of humiliation. But mostly it's that God brings upon humiliation because we're not going to get to humility without it. And I think the encouragement for us is always, do you want to go through humiliation to get to humility? Or are you willing to bow at the foot of the cross right now? Lay down your pride right now. You know, this story, parts of this story will remind you of Job. Who I, I don't know that we would ever say Job was a bad dude. Job was a stud. And yet, there was a sense of pride in Job that had to be broken. Eventually, as Job stands and says, God, you need to explain this to me. I've always been a righteous man. The answer comes back, Job, where were you when I created the earth? Even in all of your righteousness, you're going to have to lay down your righteous pride if you're ever going to understand what we're really talking about here. This story in some ways reminds me of Jonah. It was through the humiliation of the belly of a fish. And does Jonah ever really realize it? Does Jonah ever figure it out? We can talk about that some other day. But Jonah ends up really, really mad at God because a plant died. So while God is able to use him, I don't know that Jonah ever really learns, at least in the story, the part of the story that we have, how to humble himself before God. In some ways, the story reminds me of Solomon. Solomon, what do you need? I love Solomon's prayer. And you know, the, the, you can learn it as a very young child. Solomon prayed for wisdom. But if you read that text, Solomon goes, I can't, I don't have what it takes to lead these people. Would you please give me the wisdom to do so? It was through that that he was able to do what God wanted him to do. And it was as that left later in his life and as pride crept in that it wrecked everything. When I think about a humble servant being used by God, my, my mind automatically goes to Mary. You wonder if Nebuchadnezzar had a little... God, my body is yours. Do to me, I am your servant. Do to me as you will. If he had a little more of that attitude, how his life would have gone. It reminds me of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Do you remember that story? Rich man and Lazarus lived their whole lives. Lazarus is a poor beggar. And they both die and their fortunes are sw swapped in the next life. And the rich man is, is in, you know, Hades and hell. And, and um, the poor beggar Lazarus is in paradise. And, and the gulf at that point is too far to cross. And there's this, this undercurrent in that story, or maybe just the blatant point of that story is, look, earthly success does not equate to eternal life. It was the humility of the beggar that led to humility. Or that led to eternal life. It reminds me, some of the language even is so close to the prodigal son that it was in the pigsty that the prodigal son came to his senses. Nebuchadnezzar said, my reason returned. The prodigal son says he came to his senses. He saw things clearly. And it wasn't until he had been through humiliation in that pit that his senses returned to him and he instead turns his eyes. Man, I know, you, I know you want love and joy and peace. 
We don't actually want like stuff and money and power. I, I, that, that's like, we only want that because we've been told that that's the path to love and joy and peace. I know we want love and joy and peace. The path is humility before God. Really, now give me a little space here. <laughs> this is even the story of Jesus. It wasn't Jesus' pride that needed to be laid down. But it was in the humility of Christ that he took on our pride. That he paid the price for us. Isn't that what Philippians 2 says? That Christ humbled himself and became a man and obedient even to death so that God exalted him to the right hand. The path to living an exalted life is humility before God. So that's a big idea. But we might spend a few minutes saying, well, why is that true? Like, I, I, it is a, a bold thing to give up on yourself. It is a bold thing to lay down and go, I'm not going to count on myself anymore for the good life. For love and joy and peace, I'm not going to count on myself. Because if I'm honest, I don't bring nothing to the table. I bring some stuff to the table. I'm smart and hardworking and pretty capable in a lot of ways. And I can talk myself into anything and talk myself out of a lot of things too. And I'm, you know, pretty good at, at you know, like I have some skills that, that I can do pretty well. And so if I was just counting on me, I'd say I have a fighting chance at the good life. And so to say, no, actually, Grant, the path to the good life is lay all that down. Don't trust any of it. Don't trust your intellect. Don't trust your mouth. Don't trust your skills. Don't trust your resume. Don't trust the, the things that you've done or the accolades that you had. Don't trust any of that. That is all like filthy rags before God. And instead, I'm going to cast all of that stuff that the world should tells me I should be proud of. And instead, I'm going to look at all that. I'm going to receive each one of those as a gift. God, thank you. For the intellect I have today, it might be gone tomorrow. God, thank you for the family I have. God, thank you. It wasn't me. It was always you. These are all gifts that I might glorify you. And that is a shift that is just so rare and kind of takes guts. Because maybe as you sit here now, you go, in the world, I, I got what it takes. Why would I give up on me? Maybe I'd add a little Jesus to what I got going on. But to lay down myself? Why would I do that? When I give up on all of that, what is it that I'm trusting? So just four quick things. Quick, who knows? Four quick-ish things that you can trust that are not only from the story of Nebuchadnezzar. These are just, just Bible 101. But man, they are highlighted so clearly in the story of Nebuchadnezzar. First of all, so... Four things, I think, total you can trust. The first thing is about us. The first thing you can trust is that pride makes us less than human. It always does. You can count on it. Now, pride lies. Pride says, no, this is you being the most human. This is you being the best version of you. Look out for number one. Make everything about you. 
But it was true for Nebuchadnezzar and it's true for us. You can just take it to the bank. Pride dehumanizes us. From a literary perspective, the story Jenny just read to us couldn't make it any clearer. As this story plays out like a living parable centered on the destructive nature of pride. That in Nebuchadnezzar's pride, he looks down and goes, look at all of the glory that I have made and all of this stuff to my honor and glory. And while the words were still in his mouth, God went, all right, well, we're going to solve this right now. He is warned that his behavior will make him like one of the beasts. We talked about that a lot last week. But he chose to ignore it. It's been 12 months he's been strutting around. And truly, by any human standard, he has plenty to be proud of. I love guys like Nebuchadnezzar because as I struggle with pride, I go, how dare I struggle with pride? Nebuchadnezzar had stuff he could be proud of. Like Babylon was awesome. Babylon, from a worldly perspective, the outer wall you could drive chariots on. It was that thick. His palace spanned his house spanned the Euphrates. Do you have a house that spans the Euphrates? I don't have a house that spans the Euphrates. Truly, by any human standard, you could see why he would walk around and go, check all this out. I am awesome. And you know, the dream that he had that we talked about last week, that our story today is 12 months ago, Maybe he was disturbed by that dream. He definitely woke up. It said alarmed, right? But, um, and maybe he even believed Daniel that trouble would come. But look, this is how insidious pride is. We are awesome. Every single one of us is great at knowing the truth and still living with pride in light of the truth. Every single one of us knows something about, like I'm trying not to just talk about like, I know I shouldn't eat Snickers bars, but they're delicious, and 7-Eleven is right there. You know what I'm talking about? Like, there's a million examples like that. It's not a matter of knowing the truth. It's a matter of our pride. So maybe at one point, Nebuchadnezzar was alarmed. Maybe Daniel said, this is going to cost you. You're a tree. It's getting cut down. The whole thing, the be like a beast, all that stuff. And maybe on day one, he went, oh my gosh, this is really something to think about. But he woke up day two in a palace that spans the Euphrates. And you get to like six months in and you start to go, I'm feeling pretty secure. I'm feeling like my pride actually is working. Verse 29 and 30 give voice to his heart so clearly that, and at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my, uh, by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Isn't this great? You ever have a moment like that? Just totally impressed with himself. Nebuchadnezzar, it's more than that, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar has propped himself his entire life as more than human. He associates himself with the gods. We have to bow down and worship him. Nebuchadnezzar has, has promoted himself as above the rest of humanity. And the result of that pride is him becoming less than human. Something between an animal and a human. 
And for Nebuchadnezzar, this was extreme. He's eating grass and he's growing his hair and his nails out and very much living like a human-animal hybrid. And many have speculated on exactly what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar psychologically. Like this whole like living like an animal, this was not unheard of in the ancient world. It's still not completely unheard of in, in our day. Um, and, and some, I, I even got a kick out of some uh, psychologists look at this and go, oh, this is guilt-driven behavior. And I go, oh, that's very interesting. Pride and guilt working against each other. That could make sense. But I don't think you need to know that for this story to make sense. When we are idolatrous, when we are prideful, we turn ourselves into animals. Of course, idols and pride, they promise the exact opposite. You're going to be the best one. You're going to have stuff other people don't need. Lust and greed and worship of of you know, hobbies or sports teams or worship of yourself or worship of public figures. This is going to make your life better. They make us believe in the exact opposite way we're intended to behave. But do you remember what the most human life is? Do you remember what humans were supposed to be? God's junior partner in ruling over and caring for and stewarding each other and creation. And pride makes us do the opposite of that. Pride makes us not care for people. Pride makes us care for ourselves and use other people. We're supposed to be loved and cared for. Focus on each other, naked and unashamed, vulnerable, without any protection and still caring for each other with no shame. Reflecting on the very nature of community with the Godhead, as, as, especially as men and women interact, people are supposed to get a glimpse of the service and love and community in the Trinity. And pride undoes that. Pride makes us more like the animals than it does like humans were intended to be. Idols make us hoard wealth and power instead of caring for others. Pride makes us jealous and mean. We use our sexuality for personal pleasure instead of a drive to serve and love. We define ourselves by how we feel or we define ourselves by how much we have or we define ourselves by what kind of car we drive or whatever. We lord power over each other instead of serve everybody. If we are the image of God, then in our pride, we shed pretty negative light on who God is. We look more like peacocks and wolves. We look more like rats and lions than we do as we are intended to be. Do you remember that psalm that says, Hebrews reflects that same psalm, says, a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. Our pride undoes that. Pride is not the path to the good life. Pride is the thing standing in the way. So when you catch yourself strutting around, admiring all that you've done, all that you've accomplished, watch out. That just might be the path to being less than human, to treating others like they are less than human. But here's the thing. I'm not talking about Nebuchadnezzar only. I'm not talking about other people only. Aren't I talking about us? Aren't I talking about me? You can count on your pride ruining everything. Fortunately, that's not all you can count on. 
There's some things about God we can count on too. First of all, we can count on the patience of God. Remember that Nebuchadnezzar had been given this kingdom over and over. And Daniel, God is telling him, look, you are where you are because I needed someone to steward my people while I was punishing them as exiles outside of Judah. And and Nebuchadnezzar is unfit to do so. And so God has been tracking him down through the whole book. There have been two dreams. There's been the testimony of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's been the testimony of Daniel. It's been 12 months. God is not harsh. I love people that read this story and go, oh, so if you don't follow God, he'll just turn you into a beast. And like, God seems vengeful. What are you talking about? God seems patient. Over and over and over, God is tracking Nebuchadnezzar down. And there's warning and there's goading and there's testimonies and there's dreams and there's miracles and all of this is happening so that Nebuchadnezzar will turn his eyes to heaven. But it's come to the point where something more drastic is needed. It's been 12 months since this last dream. Nebuchadnezzar has begun, to, has begun to think that God either wasn't serious about his promise of judgment or isn't able to make good on it. Maybe he thinks the God of heaven might be great, but check me out. You know, I think about the words of Peter again in 2 Peter this time, 3.9, says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I think it's pretty easy for Christians and non-Christians alike to make a similar mistake that, that Nebuchadnezzar made, and is we look at the patience of God and we see slowness. Or we look at the patience of God and see neglect. Or we look at the patience of God and see a lack of power. Peter would tell us what is happening in the world is not that God is slow. And you might think that on a personal level, I've been praying for this situation for years. You might think it on a cosmic level. Jesus said he was coming back soon. 2,000 years is a long time. But the testimony of the scriptures, God is not slow but he is patient. So why is he patient? Is he patient because he just hasn't gotten around to it yet? No, he is patient because he does not desire our peril. He desires our repentance. And that is true for Nebuchadnezzar. You know, if you would just flip back to the beginning of the chapter and read the very first verses with me, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs. How mighty are His wonders. Now, while he is in the wilderness eating grass and covered with dew, I don't know if he was at the point where he was saying, how wonderful is this that the God of heaven has done this to me? But he comes out the other side. He comes out of repentance and goes, God loved me so much, he tracked me down. God loved me so much, he wouldn't let me go. He wouldn't leave me in my pride. Why is God patient? Because he does not desire our destruction. He desires our salvation. And this can be true in our lives too, and I'll tell you what, it's true in our culture. We look around and we go... This group is wrong because of this, and this group is wrong because of this, and why doesn't God smite them? God doesn't smite them because He loves them so much and desires their salvation. It is the love of God that delays His punishment. 
not the slowness of God. Which might mean, church, that we would be about the business of communicating the kind of love that would draw people to repentance instead of being about the business of condemnation. That's what God wants. You can trust the patience of God, meaning you can trust Him to be patient, and then you can also trust Him to act. He's not slow. We can also trust the reach of God. You know, God can both get your attention wherever you are and save you right where you are. And this might have been the, most, the biggest idea to the first readers, to people, you know, in the second temple period that are, you know, reading this story or, or when it's happening in the time of Daniel. This might have been the biggest idea that even in Babylon, Yahweh is king. We, talked about, we talk about this almost every week in Daniel because almost every page of Daniel, this is the theme. That God is not just the God in Judah, but God is the God even in the middle of Babylon. We've mussed up so bad, they might have thought. We've talked about this before. We're in exile. We were idolatrous. We didn't listen to God. We did terrible things. It was the abomination of Molech, and, and, and you know we were just terrible, and we've forgotten God, and because of that, we're in exile. And you might think that exile means God saying, get away from me, but there is no getting away from God. God is with them still and loves them still and saves them still. The testimony of Scripture is so clear. Do you remember that first line? Many of us memorize it when we're very, very young. Thou God seest me. We teach our children that because we want them to know that when there's a bully and he's mean on the playground, God sees it and loves you. We want them to grow knowing when it's, you know, 1230 at night and there's bad decisions happening all around you and I'm not there to say, please don't do that. God sees you. He's paying attention. Psalm 139 says, He sees our rising and our sitting down. He knows our thoughts from afar. We've talked about this before, but one of the core questions in Daniel, the core questions of the book is, is God still king here in Babylon? And guys, we need to rest in the fact that God is still king here in Seaside. No matter what the culture looks like, no matter whether sins are up or sins are down, because let me tell you, pride has not taken a vacation. But God is king here. God can reach us here. Not only is he effective to save Shadrach and Meshach from the furnace, but he's effective to hold Nebuchadnezzar accountable. Do you see both of those? That God is able to save, and God is able to bring low. No one is too far from the love and protection of God. And no one is too far from the punishment of God. This is why we can humble ourselves. Why you can give up on yourself. Why it's not you that you should be counting on. Because not only can you count on God's patience, but you can count on His reach. That those people that you love are not too far for God to get a hold of them. And that you, in your sin... You know, it could be that you're good at, you know, looking like a church person, but there might be some secret sin that is a burden. It is a boulder you are carrying around. Even as you have wandered from God, 
It is only one step back to Him. It is just that you would turn your eyes to heaven and off of yourself. You can trust the reach of God where you are right now. God is able to hem you in and God is able to rescue you. We can trust the depravity of sin. We can trust the dehumanizing nature of pride. And we can trust the patience of God. And we can trust the reach of God. And lastly, we can trust the justice of God. God is patient and God is love. And God does not desire that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And God will track you down. But God is just. God is the one we bow before. We worship Him. We deny ourselves because of His power, His might, and His justice. For the believer, this is great news because life is not fair. Have you noticed? You can do the right thing and still have difficulty. And your neighbor can do all the wrong things and seem to have ease of life. Sometimes we feel like, um, man, I've been trying to do the right thing for so long. I thought it was going to be easier. I thought I would just naturally like, be a better person who wanted to do all the right things. But, but temptation and sin and pride is always just nipping at my heels. For the believer, it's great news to go, hey, all of that self-denial, it does pay off. God is just. You can trust it. For the person who continues to run away from God, this is a terror. You might look around and be going, look how great I've made my life, but know that God is able to bring low. God is able to bring low. For those in Christ, we can rest in the justice of God because life is not fair, but God is. And in ways that we don't see right away. You know, I talked about the, the beggar, Lazarus, and the rich man, and it wasn't until after death that the justice happened. And we have to have a long view. Sometimes that is true. But God is just, and we can count on it. We look at the sins of the world sitting on the Son of God on the cross, and we go, that is every unfairness against me, and that is every unfairness that I have ever committed. That is the guilt of, of, of sin that people have committed towards me and towards each other, and that is the guilt of my sin. We look at Jesus on the cross and we see the guilt of Nebuchadnezzar's sin. Let me tell you, be very clear, Nebuchadnezzar's repentance is useless without the cross of Christ and so is ours. But we look at the cross, we look at the empty tomb and we go, that is what I'm trusting over and above my pride. I'm going to lay down my pride and trust that Savior. We look at the cross and we see the justice of God, not born upon the sinner, but born upon his son. Nebuchadnezzar didn't fully pay for his, his pride. It wasn't like seven seasons out in the wilderness and all right, Nebuchadnezzar, you can come back. No, Jesus paid for the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. And he paid for yours. And you, like Nebuchadnezzar, to experience the exalted life that Nebuchadnezzar felt that Peter talks about, need only to lay down yourself. 
humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. We need to give up on justice by us and live in the justice for us that the cross brings. So, humble yourself. Where there is anger at somebody else's sin, humble yourself. Even if it was a sin against you, humble yourself. Forgive. Give up that Give up that pride right now. Where there is hubris in your accomplishments. Man, can you take all of the things that you've accomplished and receive them as gifts instead of finding hubris and pride in them? Do it right now. Give up on yourself. Do you trust yourself? Like honestly, or do you trust God? Where there is a striving for your glory, humble yourself. Stop thinking so much about yourself. Stop caring so much about you and your situation. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, and I promise you will know at the right time He is able to exalt you. Guys, our pride makes us less than human. In our pride, in our puffed up nature, in our sin, we are less than God created us to be. And the path to that exalted human life is humility before God. The salvation of each one of us is exactly the same as the salvation of Nebuchadnezzar. Give up on yourself. Turn your eyes from your accomplishments and your pain and turn your eyes instead to the King of Heaven. Today, right now, turn your eyes to heaven. Receive freedom from your sins, freedom from your pride, freedom from your judgment and wrath. Place yourself in the care of God and God alone. Humble yourself and find yourself exalted in Him. Man, I'm going to pray for, for you and then we're going to sing Amazing Grace. I couldn't think of another song to sing after Nebuchadnezzar's story. But if there's pride in your heart, don't leave with it. You know, I say this a lot, but you are welcome in the kingdom of God. I promise God loves you. You are welcome in the gates of heaven, but your pride is not. Your pride is the one part of your story that, is, that makes you unfit. For the kingdom. It makes you unfit for friendship with God. It makes you unfit for heaven. So right now, would you lay down your pride? Right now, would you say, yeah, I might have abilities and skills, but I'm not counting on any of those. I'm receiving those as a good gift. I'm going to humble myself and put myself completely in the care of God. Heavenly Father, Lord, would you help us to get over ourselves just as you helped Nebuchadnezzar. Lord, it, it just strikes me as Nebuchadnezzar is writing these beautiful psalms about the greatness of your, of your kingdom lasting for generations and your goodness, and he had to go through a hard road to get there. 
to finally turn his eyes to heaven. Lord, give us the wisdom that we would not have to suffer that kind of loss before we would come to our senses and repent of ourselves and follow you and you alone. Lord, we're going to sing that you can save a wretch like me. Lord, Nebuchadnezzar in all of his splendor was a wretch on the inside. Me in all of my religiousness. Lord, inside in and of myself, there's just wretchedness. God, thank you that you are able to reach us right where we are. And God, I pray for my friends that if there is some pride that needs to be done away with, that it would just, that, that it would just be left here. Lord, just left with you at the cross and that we would leave this place free from our own pride, free from ourselves and free to follow you fully. God, we trust you. I love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.